Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the 21st Rewrite. You are going to really enjoy this one. If you are a regular listener, you will know that previously on the podcast, I discussed the film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World with Everett Rummage, the host of the Age of Napoleon podcast and expert on Napoleonic history. But now, I'm very proud to be bringing you a conversation with the writer of that screenplay, Mr. John Colley. This episode is focused on his latest project, Hotel Mumbai, which was released in 2018. The film was directed brilliantly by Anthony Maris, who co-wrote the screenplay with John, and starred Dev Patel and Nazanin Boniadi in leading roles. It's a powerful, tough, challenging and claustrophobic screenplay that dramatizes the real horror of the terrorist attacks that killed over 170 people in Mumbai in 2008. It was great to talk to John about this project, and I really hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. John has a wealth of great insights from a lengthy career in screenwriting that will hopefully be inspiring to you, and he provides a lot of detail about how he and Anthony Maris adapted this story for the screen. Thank you again for continuing to support the show. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and this week I'm joined by a very special guest. John Colley is a novelist and screenwriter currently based in Sydney, Australia, and the writer of many well-known films, including Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Happy Feet, Creation, The Patriarch, and the film that we're going to be discussing today, Hotel Mumbai, which he co-wrote with Anthony Maris. So just to begin with, John... Considering the times we're living through right now, how is the pandemic affecting your working and writing discipline at this point in time? Well, if you work from home, I guess it's sort of pretty much business as usual. Um, I was just watching last night a video about how they're coping, or rather not coping with the pandemic in India. And it's, uh, it's pretty bleak if you're you know, a migrant worker living in crowded conditions and sort of miles from your village. So I think, uh, you know, those of us who live a middle-class life and can work from home, we're, we're pretty fortunate in all this. And it's, to be honest, it's not changed my life much at all, you know. But um, I certainly feel for the people who've been badly affected by it. And the, the news out of America at the minute, and from Britain, really gets worse and worse with the number of deaths there. So uh, in Australia, we're relatively, by luck and somewhat by judgment we're uh, we're relatively protected from it here yeah i think that's a really good thing to be able to focus on the good side and consider with empathy what other people might be going through i think it helps Mm -hmm. so one thing i thought just to introduce this episode is about your background because i think a lot of writers end up writing and they've all taken very different paths in life but I think your story in particular is quite interesting because you started out as a doctor and you've worked all over the world and then you took to writing novels before you moved into screenwriting due to the adaptation of one of your novels and I think this is a very unique path that for listeners who are curious could you maybe briefly tell us about your background in your own words. Sure. Well, you know, it's probably not as unusual as you think. There is this myth, you know, that writers are kind of born as kind of uh, writers. They uh, they somehow just kind of adopt this mantle at the age of uh, 20 and, and their life to becoming a novelist or becoming a screenwriter is sort of an uninterrupted, clear path from then on. And of course, 
that's not the case at all. And uh, my daughters and, and son and their friends are all now embarking on creative careers. And I, I really feel for them because, you know, getting established as a creative writer or an artist or a filmmaker is really, really hard. And in my case, and I think in the case of quite a lot of people who've succeeded in this world, um, there are two things I would say. The first is you have to have something to write about first, you know. And so actually all of these shitty jobs that you're obliged to do, <laughs> you know, thinking now of my uh, my kids, you know, working in restaurants, whatever, you know, they have to do as a way of just making a living. That's actually great material. And all of the writers that I grew up admiring, like John Steinbeck, Graham Greene, Ernest Hemingway, they were people who actually went out in the world and had to live. You know, in Graham Greene's uh, case, he was a film reviewer. Hemingway, of course, was a war reporter. Steinbeck did all sorts of jobs all over the place. And, and that became their raw material. Jack London said famously, you know, that he spent two years in the Klondike Gold Rush, and that kept him in in business for the next sort of 30 years as a novelist. He was, uh, you need something to write about. And that, and sort of the more extremely experienced, the better. And so coming out of medicine, I had all sorts of experiences of life right at the edge of desperation, death, uh, injury, mental illness. You know, you see all of that as a doctor and, and that gives you the raw material when finally in my at the age of about 30 I embarked on on novel writing I actually had all of this stuff that I was processing and that became my uh, as i say the raw material so yeah that's the first thing to say about writing that it's it's it doesn't come out of nowhere it has to come out of lived experience that's all we've got and uh, and therefore I'd encourage people to do something completely different when anyone comes to me now asking me how to become a a writer, I tell them to go and uh, have some extreme experience that they can then sort of use in their work. And the other thing I say is that, you know, there again, the other great myth about writing is that it's an individual pursuit, which is complete bollocks. You know, and again, you know, you have nothing except your experience and you have nothing, uh, you have no way of, of kind of relaying this experience except by telling it to other people, workshopping it with other people relating it to other people and so I think of writing as a very communal activity I think um, part of my process as a novelist and a film writer once I've thought of a story is to tell it aloud as often as possible to anyone who'll listen rather than you know as you tend to do as a young writer sort of you know keeping it very close to your chest and not allowing anyone into it I actually actively try to tell it in as many ways as possible out loud to other people and and that is, I now discover, is how you form stories in your head. You know, you, you form them by performing them. But certainly that's true in my case. And so those are my two kind of real things in the whole of this podcast that I want to get across to up-and-coming writers is uh, live a life quite outside writing and use that as your material and secondly, share it. And through sharing, learn how to process it as a dramatic narrative. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. Um, I think there is a maturity that also comes with, with going out and living your life for a while before you, you try and set all this down. And there's just a, perhaps a misconception out there that because there's a university track where you can go in and do something like film studies or English literature and then 
a master's in screenwriting that if you didn't follow that path, you've somehow missed the boat. Yeah, sure. In fact, my eldest daughter, who did uh, English at university, and, and you know, she did English and French out of a love of literature, and, and is a, she's a natural writer and really enjoys it, says now, look, in retrospect, she thinks it would have been better to study almost anything else than English because, um, yeah, you need uh, an area of an expertise, which is something I was blessed with, you know, kind of accidentally by studying medicine. I then had access to a whole area of knowledge that is sort of secret information for, for most people. Great. So today we're going to be talking about Hotel Mumbai, which was released in 2018 as a film. It's a project you were working on since about 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it's inspired by the true events of the terrorist attacks that took place in Mumbai in 2008. Yeah. How did you first get involved with the project? And did you have any trepidation or concern when you started? This project came around in a weird way. Anthony Maras had made this beautiful short film uh, called The Palace, which I recommend people to watch. It's available online, and it's a, it's a kind of fantastically sophisticated sort of 15-minute uh, movie shot in Cyprus on a shoestring budget. Anyway, I was uh, one of the judges at the Sydney Film Festival, and I saw this uh, short film, was blown away by it, and uh, we, so we gave it the first prize, and... Uh, it was David Wenham and I were the judges, and we we were unanimous in our judgment. And uh, and Anthony sort of contacted me afterwards to say thank you. And uh, I hooked him up with my agent in America and and said, Look, let's find something in the vein of this film, The Palace, which was a hostage story, uh, as I say, set in Cyprus. And just at that time, my agent had actually received a submission, which was this documentary about the um, bombing of the Taj Hotel ten years previously. And it was the tales of survivors. So it was uh, so our way into this, Anthony and I, because we were actively looking for something we could do together in this sort of vein. The documentary was the first-hand accounts of uh, the mainly Western guests who were trapped in the hotel during the terrorist attack. So we said, uh, "Yeah, let's do this as a as a long-form movie." Um, we got a bit of money from a friend of mine, uh, Joe Thomas, who was the producer, to. Uh, to develop this and um, went off to do the research and very quickly came to the conclusion that the real story that we were interested in was the story of the hotel staff rather than the hotel guests. Obviously, these two things were intimately linked, but uh, the real heroes of the story were the hotel staff who put themselves in danger to um, to save the hotel guests. And it also, I mean, Anthony and I, I think, are both quite politically motivated. This also seemed like a a, a really great encapsulation of the the rich poor divide in these third world countries, where quite often the lives of uh, of the servant class are kind of really relegated below the value of the life of the people who are their guests in that country. You know that's uh, that's something we all live with as kind of as, as Western tourists. So this seemed like the, an extraordinary playing out of that truth. You know, so then we got interested in the. Yeah, the stories of the, the hotel staff, many of whom died in the course of this attack in the process of saving the guests. In in that sense, you approached some of this development with a lens of empathy because you're looking at the lives of the people whose story was not told in that documentary, which you said yeah, was sure. focused more yeah. on the, the Westerners. But was it hard to, to get into the mindset and find any empathy or point of 
connection with the people who committed the attack, who you also have to write about. Yeah, no, I think, yes, uh, well, as you say, we, we ended up writing about both the hotel staff, the, the terrorists, and, and the guests. You know, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin says, when asked uh, how he creates these great uh, characters, male and female, young and old, he says, look, I just imagine myself as all of them. And I think that's what you do as a writer, you know. So, uh, and I think we all have that capacity, you know, to say, look, if I was living in a slum and uh, had been raised uh, a Muslim or raised a Hindu and I found myself in a place like this, how would I react to it? You know, and we've, we've all had that experience of, you know, coming from a certain sort of level of economic security or, or, or insecurity and seeing people living in great luxury and the way you feel about it. And actually, there are two ways you can go. You can say, look, they're all human like me. I'll treat them as normal people, which is what the, the hotel staff had been trained to do. Or you could say, they're all rich bastards. I just want to kill them all, which is, um, which is what the terrorists felt. And we've all inhabited those positions. And so part of the act of writing is just kind of inhabiting those mental positions from your own experience and going, yes, well, I can see exactly how the uh, hotel staff feel about the guests they're supposed to protect, uh, which is wonderful, empathetic, and admirable. But I can also see how the terrorists feel, about, which is, uh, you know, destructive and awful, but I can see where it's coming from, you know. So, uh, and then let's just put these two opposing forces. Let's compare and contrast, you know. So, in a funny way, you know, writing a film is writing philosophy. You take these uh, these dialectic forces and you pitch them against each other by inhabiting the uh, the two spaces simultaneously. So you have to kind of split yourself up and, and sort of uh, inhabit all of the different sort of attitudes to this event. And in the clash, you discover some, uh, you hopefully discover some truths about it. Yes. In, in my opinion, there does seem to be a bit of a misconception in audiences that portrayal is equivalent to endorsement or enjoyment that you're making entertainment out of something rather than actions and characters such as heroes and villains being necessary as part of the development of a character and the storylines because to me it seems more that film is more about experiencing something rather than a medium to preach and moralize or set out with a certain agenda. It's a, it's, it's an interesting art form because it allows you to simply observe. And then you kind of have this own second storyline that goes through your head with your individual experience. And you also have a collective experience as an audience. Yeah. And that puts the filmmaker in a very powerful position. And it is a dilemma. You know, some of the criticism of Hotel Mumbai afterwards was, oh my God, this is shocking and horrifying. We feel as an audience that we've been really put through the ringer, but to what end? You know, that's a really valid question because if you're going to take your audience on a journey, uh, which is traumatic and scary, terrifying at times, then the journey has to have meaning. When the film came out, we both the Hollywood Reporter and, and Variety quite rightly said, look, what is the point of this film? It's, it's, a, it's a visceral experience but what do we learn from it now i will get to what the film is about and what one what in my mind one does learn what from it and why it's why it's a valid artistic experience but when i when i discuss these reviews with my 
good friend Paul Greengrass, he says, oh, don't tell me about it. I get that with every single movie I make, you know. Why are you putting us through this, you know? It's also traumatic. So it's a balance, isn't it? You've got to put people, uh, yes, they have to inhabit these characters and they have to feel the way these characters feel. But they also have to feel that this potentially traumatic experience has left them wiser at the end of it. And I really do feel this, that actually our, our job as filmmakers is, is to change people in some way. Now, that's not to say we're going to preach at them, but the experience that they have um, has to inform them in some subtle way about their own lives. You know, it needs to be relevant. So writing a film like Master and Commander, you know, here's a story about uh, 19th century English sailors. What is Joe Bloggs in uh, Detroit going to take away from that movie? And there has to be something in that movie which is relevant to his life. And we can talk about the meaning of that film. But that's, that's, a, that's actually a, a central article of faith of mine about writing films and, and books of the they do have meaning, and that's kind of their purpose. And the meaning often is hidden and wrapped up so obscurely that um, people don't often get it, or they get a meaning that is completely different from the one you intended, but that's valid as well. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about very quickly, you sent me your original outline and the first draft of the screenplay from 2015, yeah, and the later draft, which I think it's version six, uh, the shooting version. That was really brilliant for me because I could see the whole development of the story from what you had originally conceptualized, the all of the initial ideas and storylines and the, seeing these characters kind of get fleshed out more and more over the course of the successive courses from outline to draft and then uh, final draft. For many writers, and I would often include myself in this, but the first draft is often very rough and still needs a lot of work, but... I almost feel like your script was almost ready to film as it was. Have you noticed that as, as something that happens at, from expertise and practice that these first drafts are coming out quite strong now? The truth is that, um, you know, it's so hard to get a film financed that it has to be really, the bar is really high. It's got to be really good. And it's funny, you know, that because of the kind of the whole notion of the auteur, filmmaker, you know, that uh, people assume that uh, all the work and all of the creative work is done in the filming and then in the editing, but actually there's so much that has to happen in creating a document that gives people the impression of having seen the film and seeing a film that has already been kind of cut and edited. You know, obviously you then do a whole lot of other stuff on top of that, but Getting a document that's saleable is is a really hard task, and it's often you know like the I will generally write a a synopsis. I'll, I'll workshop the synopsis with, as I said at the beginning, talking it through with other people over and over again. When you finally get a synopsis that zings along like a great short story, then uh, you know with a thirty page synopsis, then you move into writing a screenplay, and so I'll, I'll always go synopsis, then draft, then write a draft, and then resynopsize change the synopsis around back into the draft. And uh, and that process can take easily take a year, two years, you know. So often a script, this this one actually, Hotel Mumbai, came together pretty quickly. But, um, you know, I think it was still a year's mental activity before we had a film that was greenlit to be shot. And if, if you're really working hard at a story and and uh, and and talking it through over and over and uh, and researching it and uh, bringing in new ideas then you do 
hopefully end up with something that feels as polished as a as a published novel. And the research that you did, I believe you spent a couple of weeks over at the hotel and spent some time interviewing people. Did you do that before you started the draft or did you do that mid-process? Well, the, the trick with the research is, is because, you know, you can, you can research anything and, and you can completely disappear. You know, people do, you know, disappear into like kind of months and years of research that is relatively pointless. So you've got to have a, a notion of the shape of the story, which keeps refining itself. And then as you refine the story, you, you're, your research becomes more more specific. So once we decided that this was going to be the story of the uh, of the staff more than the story of the guests, then then we knew that we had to go to the hotel, work out how the hotel worked. Luckily, there was actually a BBC documentary made about this hotel, about the functioning of the hotel, which was made prior to the bombing, and so we were able to uh, see that and then go and visit the kitchens and visit the staff and get a sense of their lives, and then go home with the staff and see where the staff lived and the kind of surroundings that they lived in. And then as regards to the, the attack, Anthony, who's an ex-lawyer, was able to get hold of the transcript of the trial of the terrorists who they caught. So he talked all about his past life in that court trial. We also had the intercepted instructions that the terrorists were getting from their handlers. And we were able to go and see the two police the, the two main cops who went into the hotel in response to the attack while the attack was ongoing. And so gradually the story is forming and the research is forming itself at the same time. You see, so uh, as you as you home in on, on what your real story is going to be, it's going to be effectively these, these three families, you know, the family of terrorists, the family of servants and the family of guests. And as we kind of concentrate more and more on who these people should and will be, then we get there. Our research becomes more and more specific. And in terms of structure, how do you like to think about it? Is this a screenplay with without a protagonist, could you say, or is it one which you might call a collective protagonist? Uh, yeah, well, the, the, I guess the main characters are a waiter who was a composite character. He was made from various waiters in real life, and he's the character played by Dev, who we called Arjun. And then Hermann Oberoi, who's the uh, the head chef of the Taj Hotel, he was the sort of father figure who kind of marshaled this little gang of uh, hotel servants to uh, to evacuate the guests. So I guess you would say they are the central characters. I do tend to think, even in a sort of a multi-character piece like this, I tend to think of films as simply as possible, as early as possible. So it's quite common to... Uh, get too much detail in a in a big complex movie like this and completely lose your way and so you have to keep on bringing it back to a very simple tale you know this is a story of a of a young penniless hotel servant who desperately wants to stay alive not least because his wife is pregnant and and he's got a family that he wants to get back to he finds himself going into work in this this hotel which comes under attack and he's obliged in the course of his job to take more and more risks which somehow he managed to survive uh, and, and come home to his family. Now, that that's the three acts. He, he goes to work, the hotel gets kind of uh, hijacked, uh, and after many adventures, he comes home again. There's act, act one, two, three. So that's basically the film in its simplest form. But then in order to understand why the terrorists did what they do, then we need to see a bit of their lives, and that's the, that's the terrorist subplot, and to understand who and why he's protecting uh, people, we have to see a little bit of the hotel guests, and that becomes the, the guest subplot. And as you say, they break into these three uh, 
kind of families, these three kind of composite individuals. Yeah. So uh, in answer to your question, I'm constantly coming back to the simplest version of the movie in order to make sure, because I'm, I'm, I think films depend very heavily on plot and structure. And so uh, I'm constantly reminding myself of what is the simplest version of this movie. And as you accumulate detail, you've got to keep on going back to, well, what is the story in its simplest form that I'm telling? And is this detail absolutely necessary? Yes, I, I noticed that in your outline, you specifically listed that there were three acts. Yeah. And so I was curious about whether or not you utilized any specific structural framework or method as you worked. Well, uh, there's actually a really good book uh, called Into the Woods, which is a, a kind of a, it's a book about all of the books written about screenwriting by John York, who's a, a very experienced uh, British screenwriter and script editor. And, and he did a study of story structure where he looked at all the great kind of gurus of film structure like Robert McKee and his predecessors. And he came to the conclusion that they were all basically doing the same thing and they were doing the same thing as Shakespeare. And we, um, we talk about the three acts of a movie, the, the beginning, the middle and the end. Something happens, complications ensue, that's act two. Something is resolved, that's act three. So the problem, complications, resolution is basically your, your three acts. John York points out that actually, if you go back to Shakespeare and before Shakespeare, Aristotle, and you find that really conventional drama is fractal. That is that each of these acts has within it three acts. And each of these, and so you keep on breaking the film down into these smaller and smaller units. In the second act, for instance, you know, if the second act is all of the complications that ensue, then there, you, can, you can identify three parts of that. And so... He says, and I agree, a film actually has five acts. You know, there's a there's the beginning, middle, and end of the second act, and then there's these two sort of uh, establishing first act and there's resolving sort of final act. So anyway, complicated way of saying that John, uh, in this book, has actually analyzed all of these theories of story structure, come out with the conclusion that they're all basically saying the same thing. And the take-home message is that you have this uh, structure which is best summarized by the story of the cat up of the tree you probably know this one but uh, like when people say oh there's only so 10 12 15 stories in the world and they're all versions of this there's actually only one story and the story is the cat up the tree and that story is a man or a woman has a cat of whom they're inordinately fond the cat escapes and runs up a tree that's act one problem okay as this person pursues their cat trying to retrieve it they're getting into more and more slender, precarious branches. And so the jeopardy is increasing and the cat keeps, uh, keeps re- retreating from them in unexpected ways. That's, that's your second act. It's these branching kind of choices which take the character further and further away from a place of safety and also further and further away from the thing they're trying to recover, i.e. the cat, you know. Okay. And then your second act ends with the character making a radical a strategic choice, you know, to do something completely different, yeah? Call in a helicopter, ask assistance from someone in the neighboring apartments, you know, ring the fire brigade, whatever that is. We have to change in that moment from being, say, an individualist to a collaborative person, but they change fundamentally as a person. And that moment of change at the end of your second act at the the worst possible point of crisis in the movie 
is where the kind of the third act, which is the resolution, is delivered, you know. So if we talk about films, as I talked about them earlier, as being the object of a film was to change people, if you get people to follow that narrative and they identify completely with the central character who you've presented to them because the central character has these these qualities that they aspire to, these qualities that they admire, then when the central character finally makes that radical shift, then your audience will shift with them. And your audience, that's the moment of learning, you know. And that's essentially how drama works. You take people through this journey of choices that are logical, 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 until finally an extremist, they're obliged to make a choice that is kind of counterintuitive. And by making that choice, they resolve the story. And that is the journey that you sort of always want to take your audience on. Now, I'll backtrack and say that when I was working on Martian Commander with Peter Weir, Peter, I would, I would articulate these theories of film structure to Peter. And Peter would throw up his hands in horror, say, oh, my God, John, you know, once you start analyzing something that extent, to that extent, you destroy it because you started to engage your conscious brain into a process that should be completely unconscious and magical. And that is actually how Peter works. And he's a genius at working in that way. But the weird thing is that he accidentally then creates in his best work, you know, like films like uh, Witness, he creates these perfect three-act or five-act conventionally structured movies out of purely working out of some uh, intuitive process of his own. So uh, that's a long way of saying that, um, yes, I'm a total nut about structure. When I talked about going from synopsis to, to the script, you have to wear both hats at once. You, you sort of you work out structure in your synopsis, but then when you're writing the script, you have to just kind of let rip and inhabit the characters and write the first thing that comes into your head. Then you have to go back and write a synopsis of what you wrote and rearrange it so that it fits that logical structure and then have another go. And that's my process for uh, dotting backwards and forwards from synopsis to script to synopsis to script. You know, And finally, you end up with something quite sort of honed that satisfies both the kind of the visceral, immersive, intuitive requirements of drama and the, uh, and the structural requirements. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one of the ways I've been trying to think about it for myself and my own writing is it's not necessarily to try and follow the structure as I'm writing, but if I find there is a problem that I cannot figure out why something isn't working, it's very helpful to go back and look at structure Absolutely. and see, yeah. is there something missing that yeah, yeah. traditionally would be here? Yeah. Because if that's missing, maybe that's why it's not flowing correctly. Sure, exactly. So usually on the podcast, when we look at one of the films, what we describe or discuss are these basic five elements. And then we've we've kind of added a sixth element recently after talking to uh, David Rabinowitz, who wanted to add this one in as well, which is tone. Um, but otherwise, we usually talk about character, dialogue, plot, story, and theme. So would it be okay to go through sure. some of these concepts yeah. with you? Sure, sure. So with character, I'd like to talk about the idea of developing a character alongside an actor. So just to give an overview of what Arjun is like in the initial outline that you wrote for this story, he is a waiter who's going to be promoted on the day. He, so usually he serves as a poolside attendant yeah. and someone doesn't make the cut 
that day. They don't meet the expectations for appearance that are so so high at the hotel. And so he gets promoted up, and that's how you got him into that fish-out-of-water situation in the first place. He also doesn't make it in the initial outline. It's his wife is waiting outside with the baby, and she just discovers, of course, he, he didn't make it out. And then by the first draft, the protagonist survives. He, he makes it out. And then by the sixth version, you have him taking on some more characteristics, his Sikh identity. Oh, yeah. but, but the heart of the character is still there. He's, the, that idea was already there from the beginning of the fact that he travels from his home in the slums, comes into the hotel, gets to work, and then, of course, the, the attack breaks out and he yeah. shows exceptional courage and heroism. To talk about that evolution in, in Dev Patel's character, if people talk about the difference between character and action, I think they're both the same thing because clearly, you know, what you do under increasing pressure is, is your character. That's how you would define your character, you know, and and, uh, and you don't know what your character is really until it's tested to what extent will you demonstrate courage in that kind of situation or to what extent, uh, you know, if you see an open door and you've got a wife and a baby who are depending on you for their very survival, you know, uh, will you head for the open door, you know? So, Arjun, the fictional character, is is tested increasingly through this movie. As I say, we had the great benefit of the true stories of uh, of a couple of um, waiters who his character is based on, one who lived and one who died. But they did these extraordinary things in the course of the attack. So we had that to sort of base our character on initially. I firmly believe that if you've got a central character who you want your audience to follow, then it has to be a couple of things that are, if not likable, at least admire, uh, admirable about him. So we're asking, you know, in Happy Feet, I asked people to follow a, an emperor penguin. It's possible to do it, whether it's an animal, a person, or a, or whatever. In this case, how do we create empathy for this guy? So it seemed like a perfectly reasonable idea to give him a wife and a baby and a and a pressure to keep working. Because often these guys are living pay- paycheck to paycheck. So he's got a baby on the way. He's living in sort of... Um, fairly lowly slum-like conditions and he desperately needs uh, a sort of like a check day to day. And so I can't remember which point this idea came in, but um, he arrives at work without a shoe and, and almost gets fired for for not being properly attired. And that's what, what we ended up with in the second thing. And, and through that, you discover just how important having a job is to this guy. But you're also impressed by his uh, how quick-witted he is. He's obviously really clever, and he's able to, as you say, transition to this next kind of level of promotion. You know, he's obviously got the skills to do that. So we like the guy. We admire him. We're going to follow him. You know, and, and for his, uh, you know, for the fact that we like the family, we like the the wife, we like the kind of the the affection he shows to these kids as he's leaving for work, and we like his dedication to his job. You know, which clearly that's all part of his character and, and these. These countervailing forces are going to get tested as he as he moves through the story because you know clearly he's devoted to his family, clearly he's risking his life for the job, and so uh, something has got to give at some point. You know, at what, what point will he will he carry on protecting these hotel guests? You know, even when uh, the chance of escape is offered to him. Yeah, that's the Dev character, and he he actually it was Dev who came up with the whole Sikh uh, thing because he'd played. Hindu waiters in the past didn't want to be repeating himself or, or get 
typecast. And he said, look, there's actually this warlike cast uh, within my religion. And then, and from that idea of a, of a kind of like a noble warrior caste, of this, this uh, urban servant, it actually belongs to this, this tradition of uh of sacrifice and service and and warfare that is a really interesting idea and that added a whole new dimension to his character and then it was Dev's suggestion that we used the kind of the sacred nature of his turban as a kind of a metaphor for the things that he was obliged to give up in the course of his journey you know so at one point having established that the turban is absolutely vital to his uh, sense of identity he's got to take it off to use it as a sling for one of the injured guests so yeah these little things that drop into research and also in this case come directly from the actor you know and his knowledge of his own culture then as i say the story evolves as the research evolves and you um you find these little details that uh that are that are gifts because they represent something much greater than the than what they actually are and with the the Western guests, I feel that many of them are quite dislikable. But one of the big changes you made was that initially David, who was originally called Adam, I think, in the earlier version, the American husband and new father, he was having an affair with yeah. the nanny, Sally, and that, that was taken out. Was there a point where you felt that that kind of complicated the storyline a bit too much or had too much moral ambiguity? After we cast them, because uh, uh, Tilly is so, um, uh, this is uh, Tilda Common Harvey, who, who played the nanny and just uh, brought so much to that role. She was just amazing. But when we saw her, she, she's, she's a brilliant actress, but was not the kind of nanny who you would, uh, who you'd, certainly standing next to um, Army Hammer, she, it wasn't, firstly, you were going to lose sympathy for Army as a character, and we needed him to be a sympathetic character so that we, for the various things that happened to him, that we uh, we empathised with him. And also, it just they didn't look right as a couple who'd be having an affair. They they, they just somehow, when you cast them, it didn't actually match that dynamic between them. And so, um, yeah, you've got to be sensitive to that. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of uh, love stories succeed or fail and the casting and if you don't have that right then you've either got to change the writing or change the cast so in this case when Tilde came on the the whole idea of an affair got dropped there's actually there's still one little glance in the film when you that sort of hints at a, at a connection between them but that's the that was the um that was the last gasp of that idea yeah, I was looking out for it specifically, yeah. knowing how significant it had been in the earlier versions to see if there were any remnants and if it was something that was more taken out during the editing or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. In the end, I think the change does work very well because even though it might be seen as making things a bit too simplistic between good and evil and right and wrong, and there is an argument to be made for having more morally ambiguous characters... I think because you've got such a wide array of characters to follow, having this side story, it, it just kind of damages the audience's sympathy towards them when I think it's most needed. Sure. What sense of responsibility did you feel you had when con concerning the real events and representing real people? For example, Chef Oberoi as a, a real person, others are composite characters. Did you feel any 
sense of responsibility and com- correctly conveying who they are? Yeah, he was, I mean, Herman Oberoi, the chef, was such an admirable character and and such a complex and interesting character that uh, he, he really was just taken from life. Anthony and I had a couple of lovely dinners with him in the hotel and talked to him all about the experiences. Very modest man, but obviously a, a consummate leader also. And he, as I say, was the guy who sort of marshaled all the, the hotel waiters and, and kitchen staff to to form a kind of resistance army. The events of his story were taken from life. He actually came along to the premiere of the film at the Toronto Film Festival and stood up in the middle of the audience to take a bow as the as the lights went down, uh, as the lights came up at the end. And uh, that was a magic moment. He's a really great character. And so, yeah, sometimes you, you have just a gift of a, a person you don't have to change anything <laughs> with because, you know, he was so perfect. And there were... You know, other characters where terrible things had happened to them, where we didn't want to make a drama to real life tragedy, and so we uh, we may have borrowed a few of the incidents from their lives and then assigned them to other people. And what about difficulties uh, moving from character now into dialogue? Did you have any difficulties writing the words for such a diverse range of characters with their different dialects and languages and different uh, economic backgrounds? Well, you know, there's. Um, I think there's uh, so five or six different languages in the movie, uh, which is one of the nice changes in modern filmmaking that uh, you know people aren't scared of subtitles anymore. So you know we have the terrorists speaking Pashtun and the police speaking Marathi, the the staff speaking Hindi, guests speaking uh, variously English, the old lady who dies uh, in the bathroom is speaking Greek. Uh, so yeah, it's like there's a there's a variety of languages there. Again, I just come back to think of yourself for that as that person and empathize as deeply as possible with this with that person. And you know, in the research, you work out the words they would use, the instructions to the terrorists, and the terrorists' replies back to their handlers were taken from real life. So in that respect, that was just sort of uh, cinema verity. It was docudrama. They um, you know we we. We used quite a lot of that dialogue pretty much unchanged. You know. Going along speaking to the cops, which was a really important part of the research, talking to them about going into the hotel with their poorly equipped band of policemen, the way they speak, you know, uh, you've just got to have an ear for it and, you, and you're writing notes as you interview these people. And uh, if you get it wrong in the script, often the actors will fix it for you because they're kind of... They're inhabiting these roles as well. Now, I wouldn't say this; I'd say that. And and if you're, as I said right at the beginning, if you regard this whole process as a as a communal activity, you know, it's not about being an individual; it's about using everybody's kind of um, insights. You know, then uh, yeah, you you can feed on that. And in terms of using dialogue, how do you feel it's best used? What what kind of tools are at your disposal when you're writing a scene? I put in dialogue, I think uh, most film writers work this way, I put in dialogue right at the very end, because you sort of want to know what the film means and what people are trying to get out of it, you know. So, yeah, the dialogue comes in quite late. And then when it does come in, you just basically you're in that phase of just sort of um, talking to yourself, hearing these voices in your head and uh, putting it down on the paper. You know, I'm constantly being told by my family that... uh, 
you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm talking too loudly, and <laughs> so my kids who used to have the the bedrooms underneath here, they've all left and gone to university now. But uh, they used to come upstairs and say, "Dad, you're we're trying to sleep, and you're hammering on the typewriter, talking to yourself again." You know, so they've got this mad guy locked in the attic, who they're uh, you know trying to deal with. Um, you know, you you do enter that sort of hopefully when the story becomes pretty real to you, then you enter that kind of um, uh, imaginary uh, sort of imaginative state when you're you're thinking and talking as they would you know and really living in the scene and 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 writing that kind of uh, sort of fractured way that people speak under stress and I did notice in your outline you had a few lines of dialogue almost as a a note to self include this this would be a great line to drop in yeah, in yeah. this scene yeah. I, th- I think that's a good way of remembering where to yeah. If if you've got something in mind for the kind of tone that that scene's going to have, a line of dialogue might sum that up better than an action. Yeah. With regards to plot, uh, how did you break down the sequence of events and your parameters for which things would be in scope for this film and what to leave out? I know that the terrorist attacks themselves took place in a number of locations all around Mumbai. Yeah. And the film focuses mainly on the attacks at uh, Chhatrapati, uh, the old Victoria Terminus, the Café Leopold, and at the hotel. Yes, and, and the Café Leopold and the, and the train station attack were really just, they, those, the ideas of showing those actually came in quite late because one of the things you're trying to do in a movie is to give an audience a, a world that they can encompass in their heads, you know, and so it's, it's essential to simplify things, including, in this case, the geography of the hotel, which is very, very complicated, and so... I draw myself maps a lot when I'm writing, saying, okay, our audience will understand that there's an entrance hall here, that you go along a corridor and there's a staircase, there's a main staircase here, you know, and they'll understand that there are restaurants on the ground floor and they'll understand that there's sort of a safe club in the very middle of the hotel on the third floor, you know, and they'll also understand that there are kitchens that that can access the restaurant, the club, and some of the higher corridors by service lifts that are accessible to the staff. So, I mean, that's a very simplified version of this very complicated hotel, but that's sort of the the simple version you have to have in your head to navigate yourself geographically around it as an audience member, yeah? And as you say, the the attack on the city was citywide and and created total confusion. It was one of the reasons that rescuers arrived so late, because... uh, the uh, Indian security forces thought they were facing a, a war. You know, they uh, they had attacks going on simultaneously at the Jewish Center, at the train station, at the uh, at the other big hotel, the Oberoi Hotel, and at the Taj Hotel, and at the train station, and in fact at a hospital. So they had these multiple attacks to contend with. I was focusing my story on the Taj because I thought that was a, a little kind of, you know, microcosm of the whole thing. Uh, that people could get their heads around, you know, we could see a, a small number of people, which actually had sort of like 600 guests and 2,000 staff, you know, so it would have been impossible to really convey the scale of the whole thing. You basically just got to um, condense it. And I generally like to have about a dozen key characters in the film, just because there's not enough real estate to share out if you've got many more than than six main players. And in this case, that uh, became... This was slightly different in that uh, 
as I said, it devolved to these sort of families, you know, rather than individuals and sort of the family of terrorists, the family of guests and, and the family of hotel staff. And one of the things that I was just hearing about as well that's very fascinating is the fact that the terrorists were operating with, they had photographs because one of the the masterminds of, of the plan had been in the hotel and had been investigating and photographing it. But a lot of these service entrances and there were almost secret passages that only the staff knew about because they'd been changed and the blueprints hadn't been updated. No, that's right. Exactly. In fact, the, hotel, the police didn't have a, a, a workable map of the hotel, and and that was that was the staff's great advantage that they knew the terrain. Uh, there's a good book written about uh, the uh, events in Mumbai called The Siege, in which uh, I think the authors describe a hotel as functioning a bit like a theatre, uh, where there's a kind of there's a front of house that everybody is familiar with, but then there's the backstage that only the that only the staff know, and a hotel is exactly the same thing. It's got the it presents this sort of, uh, you know, the the entrance lobby and the restaurants and the swimming pool is all the presentation to the outside world. But then there's this background machinery that uh, that is uh, the secret terrain in which the, the staff have, a, have an advantage. With regards to story, I feel that this story does convey a collective experience. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how, as you mentioned earlier, how you would define the story as you intended to tell it. But in terms of story and that differentiating from plot, where plot is essentially, this is what happens and then that is what happens. For example, in in this first draft, you have the attack on the train station. It's the first thing that happens. That's our introduction into the world. And then we go and see the hotel. Everything's calm. And then by the time the film is is made, the, the progress of that is slightly different. You you see the terrorists arrive and then it's a good, say, 15 pages before the attacks actually break out. But story, I think, is more about what happens to the characters over the course of the film. I guess in in one way it could be summed up that these characters get a appreciation or a renewed appreciation for their lives as a result of the experience that they went through and that these characters transform you know, we start out with Zara and and David, and they're they're very privileged. And you see how the staff are responding and expecting them to act. They're concerned about what the temperature of the bathtub is going to be when yeah. she arrives. And then, of course, by the end, who cares what the temperature of the bathwater was? Right? It, it's just thank God we're alive. Thank God we made it. I haven't talked about Nazneen uh, Boniadi, who's a fantastic actress, and she plays the kind of. Uh, uh, we wanted to have a, a cross-cultural couple as the as the guest. You know, uh, she's Muslim in the story from Bahrain. In real life, she's Persian, um, and uh, and David is is her American uh, husband. She comes from a very wealthy Bahraini family, the fictitious uh, character, and uh, and they have slightly against their better judgment accepted this kind of uh, Western intruder to marry their daughter. But uh, the, the marriage is working, obviously working really well. And he's got the kind of, um, so David then is coming into this um, world of wealth and privilege as the guest of, of his new wife, uh, played by Nazneen, who's sort of, who's completely familiar uh, with having people, you know, adjusting the bath to, 
exactly the right temperature. To her, it's all completely normal. So in a sense, yeah, her character's journey is to discover what is really important. And, uh, and of course, what's important is the baby. I had a very strong vision of this film from the beginning, as starting out with a character, Dev, in a slum with a wife and a baby to whom he's kind of deeply attached. He goes into the hotel, all hell breaks out. This palace to luxury and all the trappings of wealth is destroyed around him. And he emerges, spoiler alert, still alive, <laughs> and returns to the wife and the baby in the final shot of the film as an embrace. So you're taking this, I mean, in terms of like going back again to the idea of films at their heart have to be structurally very simple and then you add all these layers of complexity to mystify and complexify it and but you bring back to some kind of easily discernible meaning you know and, and as you say yeah the meaning is that you know we see everything that is extraneous in our lives destroyed and we're left with what is essential and the essential bond both for the wealthy couple and for the the poor servant uh, is that family bond and and that's what we end up with in both cases and and these two families parallel each other. They're both like the sort of um, the David Sarah with the nanny and the baby. Sort of they see they they too see everything destroyed around them, and they, and they end up with at least some of them surviving, and the and the baby still alive. So uh, that's yeah, that's the very simple um, sort of uh, yin and yang, simple sort of structure, simple basic idea of the film. The other thing to say about plot is that, you know, you've got to keep the motor running, you know. So when you say that the the first, the beginning of the, the first act of the film uh, before terrorists actually burst into the hotel did take us to these other places. But right from the um, moment of the, of the rubber raft arriving with the terrorists at Calaba on the beach there, you know that something bad is going to happen. And so... You're basically waiting for all hell to break roots through the through that first kind of 15, 20 minutes of the movie. There's a constant note of tension cutting from the terrorists sort of creating mayhem around the town, uh, to driving to the train station, opening up with automatic weapons, driving to the the uh, uh, Cafe Leopold and, and lobbing grenades. You're intercutting that with these kind of these surreal scenes of luxury, privilege, and calm in the hotel. You know, and you know that these two worlds are going to collide. And so the motor for the first act is the presence in town of the terrorists who you know are up to no good from the very start. And it's essential, you know, when you talk about structure versus plot, you know, the whole trick in a movie is to keep people glued to their seat. If as soon as someone in a movie starts looking at their watch or wondering or, or, or worrying about the, the guy eating popcorn in the seat in front, as soon as, as, soon as they're distracted, you've lost them. You've, the whole the movie's work because the audience is in a sort of dreamlike state and you hold them in that state through the plot. That's, that's our job. In fact, when I'm teaching about film, I, I show people a, a clip from the uh, movie Inception, which I think is a film about filmmaking. Uh, and in that movie, the leader of the Inception team has to design a maze which keeps um, his target audience kind of stuck in this fantasy world. And the maze, um, in my reading of it, is the plot of the movie. So the maze designer is actually the the, um, the plot designer. And the, the nature of a maze is that the audience have to make active decisions about what is the best way out of this. So when I 
compared it to the guy pursuing a cat up a tree or the girl pursuing a cat up a tree. That's a branching series of options that you can take at any time. And your audience is with the central character who is choosing these various options. And so your audience is kind of actively involved in the thought process of uh, go that way. Oh, my God, don't go that way. And and that's how Hotel Mumbai operates. You know, our central characters are, are constantly being faced with these choices, these binary or choices, and, and, and choosing a course of action, which their audience may or may not agree with, but are kind of, but are actively involved with. And every little sequence of the film takes that course of action and the consequences of that action further and further along to a place of greater and greater jeopardy, to the climax of the second act where they were in a safe place, but now the safe place is, um, the hotel has been set on fire and, and, the, and the place that was the safest is now the most dangerous place of all. And, uh, and they have to get out of there and they decide to go together, which has a whole lot of its own problems uh, attached to it. You know, do we, do we split up or do we stay together? So, yeah, you're, uh, you know, in one sense, you're, you're following the, the real history of the events. In the other sense, you're collapsing and condensing that history to create, as I say, a kind of like a constructed maze, a constructed route, you know, that the audience feel they're leading themselves through, but you're actually, as the puppet master, leading the audience through. And in following that route, they'll learn something about the characters. but most importantly, they'll, they'll learn something about themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective on it. Audiences are constantly putting themselves in the position of the characters and thinking, oh, I would... It, horror is a really great example of yeah, yeah, yeah. a genre where yeah, yeah. this comes right to the forefront. It's, would you answer the door? Would you answer the phone? And this, this film does use a lot of those elements that you might find in horror. Yeah. Where you know there's a voice on the other end of the line saying, "Are the police, are the rescue squad outside, or are you going to open the door and find that there's a terrorist on the other side of it?" Sure. And that suspense, that not knowing, I think that really grips people when they watch Hotel Mumbai. And as we were just talking about story, and we talked about the hotel workers' story and the guests' stories. And you said there are there are basically three different families in in this film. Maybe the f- the story that's being told for the third family, which is the terrorists themselves, is the one where they realize the follies and the extent to which they've been taken advantage of sure. by more powerful forces. Because the one link that everyone has to universal humanity is the fact they all have families that they care about, yeah. and you have one of the terrorists phoning his father and asking, did they at least give you the money for this? You know. Yes. That, so we have a family of hotel workers who were talked about with Hermit Doberoy basically as the father figure and, uh, and the dev character Arjun as the eldest son, you know, so that's a, that's a, there's a family there. Um, and the, and the unruly teenagers of the, uh, of the rest of the crew. It's interesting actually going back to the master and commander, you know, when, uh, when I find this all Master and Commander, and, and you know, it's, it's often late in the piece that you discover what the film's about. You know, I mean, Master and Commander is a is a story of a family in a way, and that you know, when uh, people used to say, "Why are there no women in this movie?" and uh, uh, in a way, Paul Bettany is the female character. You know, he's the nurturing, kind of inclusive female figure in a way, and and Russell Crowe is the two fisted 
victory at all costs sort of male masculine character and then the uh the young cabin boy Blakeney is the young child who is attracted to both of these paradigms of behavior and wants to be both you know so uh there's a line in the middle of uh martian commander where Blakeney says to paul bethany's character uh uh, is there such a thing as a fighting naturalist? And that kind of defines the meaning of the film. In this case, these three families, I think one of the ironic truths about family is your strength is your strength is a product of your differences. You know, so the the family of terrorists included sort of a, a, a religious fanatic, a person who was basically a bit of a violent psychopath, a guy who did just care about getting the money for his family and was doing this out of sort of uh, loyalty to them, a guy who was more of a religious maniac. They, they were all, actually, they were, they were specifically chosen by the, the people who set this whole operation up for their differences because these differences in, engender a kind of a, a strength within the group. And when you form uh, military platoons in a military operation, you, you, uh, you classically will find eight people and, uh, and you'll, you'll pair them up with... Uh, who are not necessarily the same people, but who will reinforce each other's strengths and uh, compensate for each other's weaknesses. So that's actually the theory of forming a platoon in in in, uh, in the in the military mindset. That's how this group of terrorists were brought together, and that was true both of the the family of waiters that we created. That they were they were all amazingly different, but their their strength as a group derived from these very differences, and that proves to be the case with the fictitious family of uh, David, the nanny, Sally, and, and his wife, uh, Zari, played by, played by Nazneen, that they all had completely different attitudes to, to family life, but it was these differences that, that gave them strength as a unit. And, and the final component of that particular family is the, is the very dodgy <laughs> Russian kind of plutocrat who they befriend in the restaurant, who is kind of the exact opposite of David. He says, so he's this kind of um, foul-mouthed, uh, violent, uh, sexist uh, asshole who turns who turns out to be essential to their survival. Yeah, I, I think one of the scenes that had the most impact, and it has a very powerful effect, I think, to watch it, is, is when one of the terrorists, I think it's Imran, is the terrorist in, in question, he's asked to kill Zara. And she's praying. It, it's hard to think at times. You're thinking, well, how can I put all of the characters through an increasing level of difficulty, more and more obstacles in their path? But this one, I think, really linked into what would be the toughest thing for someone to experience while they're doing this. It's the sudden realization that, that their handler doesn't care about the faith of the people sure. who are, are dying. Sure. And that, uh, so that story came directly from uh, a survivor of the hotel. I talked at the beginning about this uh, documentary, uh, Surviving Mumbai, which was uh, one of the uh, original inspirations for this whole thing. And, uh, and that story uh, is told by a Turkish woman who survived. And it's absolutely true. She and her husband were hostages. And uh, she was somebody who'd, not completely renounced her Muslim faith, but it certainly parked it in the back of her mind. And uh, when threatened with execution, what popped into her head uh, was um, this surah from the Quran, 
which she just started repeating, and the uh, and this resonated with the guy who had been instructed to to shoot her. So it's funny these little significant details that come out of research. Then you know that's such a perfect moment that it kind of actually it suggests not just the moment itself of of the of the terrorist deciding not to shoot her, but it also suggests a whole backstory for that character and for that terrorist, you know. So as soon as you've got that scene, you go, well, we've got to have that scene. Then you go, well, we've got to establish that terrorist as a guy who is actually the person in the crew who is the most gentle and the most religiously motivated. And let's establish the woman, who in that case is the character played by, the Zari character played by Nazneen. Let's establish her as somebody who has rejected her family, religion, rejected the traditionalist views of her mother, and finally returns to them in her moment of extremists. So, yeah, you see how like a a plot from, from really significant, from research like that, a plot kind of starts to write itself backwards and forwards. Once you hit on a moment that you've got to have in the movie, then uh, then it implies establishing moments, and it is that, and and it also implies a, a resolution. Great. So I think the last piece out of the five elements that I, I like to talk about would just leave themes, and di- I do think different writers have different approaches to this. Do you set out to? include any themes specifically when you write or do you prefer to see that just evolve naturally as a course of writing which themes do you think you might have liked to include but didn't get to include as well well it's funny that the themes kind of uh they have to be subconscious like they have to creep up on your audience it's often that you you don't ask yourself till if you ask yourselves at all why a film moved you uh you always, but when you do ask yourself that question, you generally discover that it's to do with the theme of the movie. You know, as a writer, you tend to be gripped by certain stories. So this was a gripping story right from the beginning. The meaning of the story is only something that um, kind of occurs to you afterwards. And as I say, the meaning that I take away from this story is that it's a story about families. The funny thing is that when in a in a career as a as a writer. You think you're you're writing about all sorts of different things, but you end up writing about the same thing over and over. And my and the two sort of fascinations of my life have been about individual versus community. Individual, you know, like the this, this romantic notion of the individual and the and the increasing discovery as you get older that uh, everything hinges on relationships and partnerships and uh, and, and collaboration. And, and as indeed this film. Did I think a really fruitful and great collaboration with Anthony, and the other theme that keeps popping back into my uh, work unbidden is the strength of family, the the importance of family. However, you define it, you know, like family is not necessarily a biological unit. It's a it's a group of diverse and divergent people, you know, and the and the weird way that that creates. Uh, strength rather than the weakness is the embracing of of all the differences yeah these themes keep on coming back into my work no matter how much i try and write in different genres and in (laughs) in different different kinds of stories they uh they they're constantly reappearing what have you learned from writing hotel mumbai and from the audience reactions to it 
I'd have to say that uh, one of the things I learned, and Anthony is a much more daring filmmaker than me. I'm 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 quite conservative, and I um and I tend to uh, not challenge the audience as much as I might. I guess uh, Anthony's quite prepared to put the audience through the ringer, and I think I've learned from him. You know that you can actually you can take it further. You know the, than you thought. You know and actually and sometimes that really elevates the whole piece you know more detail more heightened emotion you know uh i think uh you know our, our partnership uh was uh very fruitful in that way and that uh you know what i brought to the party i i guess was a was an experience in in film structure and uh and story structure uh and maybe character development but what anthony certainly brought was this uh notion of Pushing the boundaries, both in terms of the detail, the amount of detail that you can cram into a movie like this, and also the the extremes of emotion and the extremes of behavior that, that you can sort of push the story into. Yeah, because when, when I was watching Hotel Mumbai yesterday, just in preparation for this, you know, I'm I'm often following story and structure and and looking at a film through that lens. But of course, a film is a visual experience as well. And so I was kind of looking at Anthony's directing style, and I wrote down some words that I thought kind of described yeah. what he's doing. But it's it's very claustrophobic and close. Uh, it's very tense and suggestive. But one of the things he does really well, which I thought is an element of storytelling, is the fact that he tells parallel stories within the same frame and often that could be when there's a close call for example he'll have us watching one of the characters trying to escape whilst on the other side of the screen you see one of the terrorists walking through in the background looking the other way and that ability to tell two stories at the same time something that you can do with with deep focus is is something that it, it sometimes escapes our mind as writers that you can actually do two things at once in a film. Well, and actually that is a, that's a key difference between writing and, and shooting a film in that to get all the detail, to get that level of detail into a movie, you'd have a 200-page script and, and the reader would lose the sense of the film. But as a director, if you're able, as Anthony is, to hold all of these parallel narratives in your mind at the same time, which is an amazing gift, you know, and then to reference them, yeah, that, that's partly what gives this film, I think, so much of its richness. So my next question is, because writing is such a collaborative process, and it's also screenplays, we tend to develop them over time with various different versions. Who do you show your work to to get feedback and advice? Who, who do you reach out to and who do you trust? Well, generally you're, you're doing it with... Uh, you know the producer, the director. You know, so I'm, I'm working on a TV thing just now, and and there are so there are three different producers on it. So we all collaborate, we all read every draft, and then feed in ideas, and then finally you're sharing it with the the cast and and incorporating their ideas as well. But at the beginning, honestly, tell it to anyone. Charlie Chaplin had this uh, way of developing his silent films, where he would um, he would hold a dinner party and he would tell the film aloud to the dinner table, you know, just of his friends. And uh, and when he could hold them all spellbound for you know half an hour, forty five minutes, just with a narrative, then he knew he had a movie. So that's the test, you know, because you you basically when you start selling tickets to this thing, 
you want everyone to come. So you've got to be able to, uh, you've got to have the nerve early on to tell it to the least receptive audience and get a response from them, you know. What is one thing you've learned over the course of your career that you wish you had known at the start? Um, uh, oh, that's a really good question. And it's, um, there's so many things. uh look i think the one thing is that it's it's all about relationships and uh this notion of the uh the sort of the the solo artist working in a garret and producing some work of genius is complete bollocks and and weirdly we've been you know we've been sold that myth in almost every art form you're in painting picasso was this genius who lived in his garret in paris and just produced these things out of uh, thin air or you know sort of uh tolstoy was this guy who lived in some estate in russia and uh, and conjured this stuff out of nowhere uh you know spielberg is this genius director who just sort of thinks up these who can sort of um you know think up uh uh saving private ryan and 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 just get this sort of uh go to Normandy and, and film it, you know, it's, it, and those uh, sort of um, titans of, uh, of art and culture will all tell you that it's bollocks, you know, that their, their, their key talent is being able to assemble a team of people who they love and know and trust and, uh, and harness their diverse skills and talents to create something fabulous. And even though of all the art forms, that I've been involved in, you know, novel writing, you could say, you know, novel writing all comes from, uh, you know, a person sitting in front of a screen and it's all coming out of their own head. But that's to ignore the fact that you have to tell these stories aloud to work out of their working. You have to research them. You have to derive the information from interviewing people, you know. So there's a huge area of novel writing, even novel writing, which is, collaborative and uh, and as a group activity you know so all art is group activity i think that's the one thing that i'd like to have known right at the beginning yeah i think that's a, a really brilliant point to end the the podcast on then so john thank you so much for your time and um Pleasure. is there anything you'd like to share just anything you'd like to plug last before before no, the recording ends and I really enjoyed the the program, uh, William. And uh, good luck with it. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's actually it's quite rare actually to to get to talk about our project at such length, you know. And uh, and so really enjoyable. 